That's pretty loud. <laughs> and Noah, that was my fault, not yours. So. Ow. You think it hurts you? I was right beside it. Mm. I think I have earwax that is built up in my ear now. That was awful. One of the things that I love, and, and I cannot encourage you enough to, uh, to read Scripture and read it regularly. Um, I, when I became a Christian, I, I was taught in the school of thought that you had to have a quiet time. And a quiet time was that you spent a certain amount of time in Scripture and you spent a certain amount of time in prayer and then you journaled. And if you didn't do that, you weren't a good Christian. Truthfully, it was very legalistic for me. And uh, I was dumbfounded with one of, when one of my heroes, a guy named C.S. Lewis, said that he felt like every now and then we shouldn't read the Bible. Uh, because he, he, what he was saying was, it shouldn't be legalistic. But you do need to read it. And I know for some of you, you read regularly. And for some of you, you're dumbfounded by the thought of reading. And I, and I would just like to encourage you, don't go to the legalistic mindset. Uh, don't go to the God loves me if I read this much, and if I don't, I feel guilty. But instead, just try to start reading some. If you're not reading at all, pick one day a week and uh, put it on your calendar and go, I will read the Bible for 15 minutes. I know some people would be like, oh, you should read more than that. Well, maybe you should, but if you're not reading any and you start reading 15 minutes, that's 15 minutes more than you were reading before then. That's something God gets excited about, I think. But part of the reason I think that we should be reading Scripture is, is God talks to us through it. But also the more we read it, the more we begin to, to pick up all these other stories that Jesus is hinting at. Uh, those of us who've been going through the New Testament and those, anybody who else who's interested, we will start up other groups. Uh, I'd like to have two or three more groups in the fall where we have people that are reading through the New Testament and those who've read through the New Testament this fall, they release the first section of the Old Testament in the same way so that we can start on the Old Testament too. Within a year, you, all of us who are in the New Testament section, you should be a, able to say you've read through the entire Bible. But one of the things that I think those of us in, in the group who've been reading through the New Testament in these eight weeks have noticed is you probably pick up on connections between stories. That when you read one story, you go, oh, that's similar to this. And, and the thing is, is we do that all the time in our lives. And we don't think about it at all. If, if I make certain statements in my family, everybody else starts, starts laughing or, or kind of doing you know, a mindset that has something to do with that, or maybe they're finishing that. Uh, there were times when I was a youth minister that there were certain movies that I could not quote because if I quoted that movie, then what would happen is all these teenagers who were involved in whatever I was doing before then would then start talking about the rest of that movie. Okay, For one, I'm a huge Monty Python fan. I love Monty Python. And, and I had a group of teenagers that I was leading who thought that Monty Python's Search for the Holy Grail is the greatest movie ever. And I would not completely disagree with them on that. And I thought one time during a sermon that I was doing, it would just be absolutely wonderful and they would love it if I showed one scene from it. And I showed the scene uh, with the dark night. So some of you know that. The problem was is that when I showed that scene, they began quoting to one another the rest of the movie. And I don't mean like for 15 seconds. I mean for 30 minutes, just back and forth going out. They do it all the time. And sometimes it changes the context when you know the stories that are behind it. The passage of Scripture that we're going to go through tonight is a passage of Scripture that so many people treat as this nice little wonderful image of Jesus. 
and it's wrong. So, what? It's on their model. It's on, stop. Don't go down that road. <laughs> Jacob's trying to start trouble. So, we're going to go on the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to skip one part that some of you uh, would like me to deal with. Um, actually, I'm not. and We'll do that next week, though. So, this is what it says. It'll appear behind me, and then it's in the Tapestry Bibles and on the paper also. And remember the website also. It's on the website. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If... I love the fact that Jesus says if here because of how absurd what he's asking them to do is. Uh, if anyone asks you, where, what are you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a, at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They, they answered as Jesus had told them to and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and uh, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the, in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, "Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest." Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he left and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, guys, typically this is shown as this great moment where Jesus is praised, and it is. But how I mention stories that that we know and, and inside jokes and such, there are tons of things that are going on in this story that would have changed well, this is not a peaceful gathering. This is not a nice little peaceful thing. This is a revolutionary entrance that is taking place here. So, I didn't know much about Christianity when I first became a Christian, but I had heard of Jesus riding in, and I knew that every now and then, uh, that right before Easter, you would give kids palm leaves, and they would wave them in the air, and they would shout out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Wonderful, nice little picture. Some of you may have done that, actually. Anybody here as a kid ever got a palm leaf and wait? There we go. It was probably the best part of church for you, wasn't it? Used to what? Oh. Oh. Who knew? If any of you are burning palm leaves, stop it. We need the rain, Okay. <laughs> I'm blaming you. <laughs> I didn't know that. Now, I can tell you this. If you were raised Catholic, and I believe the Anglicans do it also, but the ashes that go on your forehead are the palms from last year. Probably just a few of the palms, but still. Guys, this story would have scared the ever-loving bejesus, and I don't even know what bejesus are, but they can't be good, would have scared the ever-loving bejesus out of everyone in power in Jerusalem. Because what's going on here has 
all of these ramifications of past stories that are being hinted at, and they're not nice little pleasant stories of, oh, wow, here's Jesus meek and mild. Instead, it's like, yeah, I'm about to change who's in control. The first one comes from this. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Almost everything you read in this passage hints back at this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Now, O daughter of Zion is a reference to Jerusalem here. O daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus probably knew what was going on here, and he specifically set this up. Now, they would know this reference. This is a messianic reference. This is a reference to the Messiah. And I want you to think for a second. The chief priest, the people in power. If Jesus comes entering into Jerusalem and he's riding on a donkey, what do you think they're going to think? Savior, and not just Savior, he is proclaiming himself king. He's proclaiming himself Messiah. He is proclaiming himself king. What in the world are we going to do? But then it gets a little more so. Now, in the story, they, they do a couple of things. He gets the cult. And by the way, does anybody else just want to laugh about the fact that Jesus is just like, hey, go steal some, some guy's donkey. He borrowed it. And Pete, if I come to your house and just randomly start pulling stuff away... Is that considered borrowing or stealing? Okay. (laughs) Here's what I love. So many times Jesus tells the disciples to do something and they question it. Now, here it does not specifically say, and they immediately left and did this. But so many other times they're like, what are you talking about? What do you mean by this and such? And he has to tell them. I just think the implication here is is that the disciples finally just go, well, you don't know what he wants. We're just going to do it. Okay, I, I think they're just like, you know, it's all on him. What a wonderful way to live life, okay? It's all on him. You know, it's up to him. If it fails, it's Jesus' fault. If it succeeds, it's his fault. I'm just doing what he tells me. I, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. I love the fact that they left, and I love even more, because we get so used to reading the Bible in these nice ways, that you know, the people there are like, hey, what are you doing with that donkey? All right, if somebody comes up and tries to, to take your car, how are you going to respond? Okay. It's not going to be like, hi there, stranger that I don't know. You seem to be picking the, the lock on my car. That's interesting. What are you doing with that? No, you can say, hey, what are you doing with that donkey in multiple ways? <laughs> and the fact that they, they just go, oh, the Lord needs it. Okay. I just I love the fact that Jesus is in control of this moment. He is in control of this. The disciples trust him enough to do it. Because can you imagine how completely awkward that would have been? Yes, sir. Um, if you're talking like if those guys are letting them take the donkey just because they're scared to leave it, would it be pretty bad in the future if there's a Jesus that takes the donkey? I think it would be, but I think that there's a difference here. One of my, my favorite books is by a guy named Don Richardson. Don Richardson was a, a missionary. And then he writes about missiology, okay, which is the study of missions. And, and Don Richardson writes this book called Fire in, uh, excuse me, Fire in Their Hearts. In this book, he tells all these stories of missionaries going to places and God having already provided, uh, prepared the way. He tells this one story of, of these missionaries going to this land 
And, and when they get there, the, the people see that they have a Bible with them. And they go, this is great. We've been waiting for you. And the reason they say that is because a Muslim had come, uh, come before and had a copy of the Old Testament. A Muslim. Someone who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? A non-believer had come and he had a copy of the Old Testament. And this Muslim said, one day a man will come with a, with a book that looks just like this and he will explain to you what this means. And they saw this, these two missionaries coming and they had a Bible that just so happened to look very similar to that Old Testament. And they came and they said, we've been waiting for you. See, I believe in a God who can use a non-believer to still accomplish his will. I cannot tell you the number of stories that I've read about, but also friends of mine who are missionaries that talk about the fact that God has prepared the way. Prepared the way for him. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, that we have this great faith here in America. And when the rationale is, truthfully, some of the best, most incredible examples of the church in the world right now are in the places where it's not allowed to be. There are Islamic People, believers uh, in, in what, excuse me, not believers in the way, <laughs> but Muslims who are coming to faith in Christ because Christ is preparing the way beforehand. You can read story after story. If you want to see one of the most vibrant churches in the nation, or not in the nation, in the world, go to China. It's not even legal. God prepares the way. And I think this is an example of that. That, yes, if you or I came to Pete and we're like, hey, Pete, I'd like to borrow your truck, but I'm not going to tell you about it. It'd be one thing. But if God had already prepared the way and people, oh, yeah, I've got it all ready for you. It's gassed up. I, I cleaned it out. Matter of fact, I just changed the transmission in it just for the fun of it. Okay? God prepared the way here. That's what I think is fascinating. Is one, the disciples, they went ahead and did it. One, because I think he probably asked crazier stuff before then. So they're just like, okay. But he'd already prepared the way with this guy. What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe, maybe God had talked to him and said, hey, there are going to be these two crazy people who are just going to come and try and steal your cult. If they say uh, the Lord uh, need, has need of it, give it to them. If they don't, go and kill them. Actually, I don't think God would say that. Okay. <laughs> Does that make sense? All right. I think he prepares the way. But here's the, thing, the other thing about it. The people in Jerusalem participate in this. What did you see that they did? Yes, ma'am. Well, they put their cloaks on, of course, as they go. Yes. It's your outer garment, for sure. Yes. See, Chan, this is, this is why I love, love you being around, because you just always ask questions that make it look like I'm just so smart. Okay, you're being generous again. Two references. First is this. This is 1 Kings 1, 38 through 40. If you read in 1 Kings, you have this amazing king whose name is David. He is the archetype of kingdom for, uh, for the Jews. And he has a son who is going to be king. Does anybody know whose name? Solomon. I don't know. Who, there we go, Jackie. Solomon. Guess how he was, was coronated. With a donkey that was pulled through town, and there were um, rugs and such put on top of that donkey. Here's where it gets kind of scary, though. The next reference is this the worst king that Israel ever had. Now, if you read the Old Testament, 
Israel means two things quite often. Actually, three. There's a a spiritual Israel that talks about the, the nation of people wherever they are. There is the nation of Israel, and then there is the nation of Israel. I know that doesn't sound right, but this is what I mean. At one time, Israel is a combined nation. It is a a whole nation, and then it splits. And it splits into what is known as the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. So, after they split, Israel, the northern kingdom, has the worst king ever. His name is Ahab, and his wife, does anybody know his wife's name? Jezebel? Have you ever heard of Jezebel before? That's how evil it is. She becomes a a slang word for evil. And and Ahab is a terrible, terrible, terrible king. And God says, I am going to wipe your family out. So Ahab dies, but they have a son. And God says, I'm going to get rid of him. His son, Jotham, becomes king after Ahab dies. And God uses a guy named Jehu. J-E-H-U, to get rid of him. And the story is this. Elisha sends one of his helpers to go and anoint Jehu king. And Jehu is anointed king, and and, and Elisha's helper says, God will use you to get rid of, of Jotham. And immediately... When, when the followers of Jehu, he, he was a general, so his soldiers hear this, they began to put their cloaks down in front of him while he was walking so that he would not touch the ground. Does this sound similar at all? Jesus enters, enters Jerusalem on the week of the Passover. The Passover is the remembrance of an event that had taken place 1,500 years before. The Israelites were slaves. The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. If you've ever watched The Prince of Egypt, it's all about this. Okay. They, were, they were slaves in Egypt, and God frees them. He frees them by basically putting all, bringing all these, these plagues on Israel. And the last one is the plague of the firstborn. And God is going to kill the firstborn of everyone and every animal that is not proclaiming their faith in Him by basically killing a lamb and putting the blood on the thresholds and the doorpost. Kind of cross-like if you think about it. And the Israelites are freed from this. It's remarkable because they're not just freed in the sense of like, oh, you can go. The Egyptians come and beg that they would leave. They don't just beg. They say, here, here are my valuables. Egypt was probably the only nation ever plundered willingly. Okay? The, the Jews were slaves, and God gets them free in such a way that the Egyptians are like, just get out of here. Here's my wallet. Take it. And so Israel proclaims that God has set them free from their slavery over and over and over, and they still do it to this day. One day we may actually participate in a Sedar meal, a Passover meal, a Paschal meal, all three meaning the same thing. But Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the eve of the Passover, and people, people are proclaiming Him King when there is a King. Herod was king. And they're proclaiming him king in a way that that hints back to Solomon, the great king. The king when Israel's territory was the greatest. And hints back 
to Jehu, who was a usurper. Jehu, who, who got rid of the household of Ahab. If you're Herod, this is going to scare you. And it should scare you. But that's not the only thing. They, they took cloaks and they put that out. And that hinted towards kinghood. That hinted towards Jehu, this revolutionary king. But what else did they put out? Branches. And branches is probably the most accurate. Palm leaves are, are correct. But if you look at the different, uh, different gospels, some of them are going to say leaves of a tree. Some are going to say leaves of the field. Matter of fact, Mark, if I remember right, says leaves of the field. Um, guys, it's because sometimes we just think, hey, it can only be one thing or the other. But realistically, if, if we were going to, uh, let's just say that, does anybody here know what a royal rumble is? <laughs> yes, what is a royal rumble? Yes, very impressive. And are there any tools that are used? Candlesticks. I've never seen. <laughs> I want to go to the wrestling match where they, they have candlesticks. No, kendo. Oh, kendo. I thought you said candlesticks. <laughs> that would have been all. I mean, come on. It's a Royal Rumble. And because it's Royal, we have a nice little dining set here. Um, okay, kendo sticks. All right, that makes more sense. I like. But you use whatever you have at hand, right? I mean, you're not going to be like, it's a Royal Rumble. I can only use a chair. No, if there's a kendo stick there, you're going to use it. If there's a candlestick there, you're going to use it. These people were probably grabbing anything that they could leaf-wise. They were trying to cover the floor. So it could have been grass. It could have been uh, leaves of grain. It could have been palm leaves. It could have been anything. And it wouldn't have just been one or the other. It would have been everything they could get and just put there. Why? So... This is not from the Bible. This is from the Apocrypha. But it's still very true to where we are. Because Judas Maccabee, which is, is a Hebrew understanding of a Greek word that means the hammer. If you've got to have a nickname, that's pretty awesome, okay? The hammer. And, and Judas Maccabee led a family that, that had the best moment of Israel for the previous 200 years. It's called the Maccabean Revolution. And for this brief time span, Israel was free. Now, the Roman Empire was, was truly impressive, but at this time, Israel was controlled by the secluded empire. Okay? And it's seclusion empire, not secluded. Um, what? I've heard it seclusion. I've heard it multiple different ways. It's not secluded. I know that. <laughs> it, and basically think Persia. Okay? That's about the region. And they were controlled by this empire, and the Maccabeans led a revolution. To give you an idea of how important it is, you probably know of three Jewish holidays. One I've already mentioned, which is Passover. I'm, I'm guessing you probably knew that. I'm guessing there are two others that you probably know, maybe four. Yes, sir. One would be Hanukkah. That was one of my guesses. Yes. Anybody else want to take a guess? I was thinking Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah. Yes, those are it. Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And Hanukkah, what does it celebrate? Eight days. 
eight, eight days of, of the, the lamp having oil. Yes, sir. <laughs> I have Jewish friends who would beg to differ, but <laughs> that's good, Joe. Guys, eight days where the, the lamp burned when it should have only had enough oil for one day. And what was going on where this lamp burned? It was the Maccabean Revolution. Now look at what's going on here. Judas Maccabees comes into town after having freed Jerusalem. And what do people put out? Yeah. So Jesus enters Jerusalem on the eve of the celebration of freedom. And the people begin to shout out to one another, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes from the household of David. They are shouting out to one another, Hosanna, which is a word meaning save us. On the day that they remember that, that the Passover has come, the day that God saved them from slavery, they shout out as another one enters, save us. And they put out their coats and their cloaks in front of him, just like they would have done with Jehu or with Solomon. And they put palms down like they did with the Maccabees. Guys, Jacob Maccabee, whoops, Oops, there we go. Actually, I'll check. Do you understand why the Romans might have been scared at this point? Are you picking up that this was not some nice little peaceful scene? This was the beginning of a revolution. I want you to think for just a second, because I know we all hate, hate Wisconsin Rapids. The person from there is like, I just like it. I mean, just think if suddenly we're all like, it's it. It's time. Wisconsin Rapids has to be wiped out. <laughs> Guys, you would understand how they would, they freak out a little bit. And since, you know, I can't, I'm going to stop trashing on Wisconsin Rapids, but they would freak out just a little bit because they were, were you know, we were torturing. No, not torturing. We were, we were threatening to go after them. And everything that Jesus was doing here and that the other people were doing was hinting of there is about to be a revolution. That Jesus comes in. He picks a cult, which is a messianic symbol. And as he's coming in, they shout, save us, Hosanna, save us. And then they begin to do things that hint back to a new king, a new king, a new king, a new king. And he is entering the capital where the king is at. This is not some nice little peaceful march. Not some nice little parade. This is a group of people ready to go and take over the city. I love the play Les Mis. I've seen the play, I think, have we seen it three times? Two or three times. I've read the book a couple of times. Uh, Victor Hugo wrote it. It's just amazing. And, and the book is better than the play. But then the play has these moments. And this, this moment, this, they begin to sing this song. And it's like, do you hear the songs of angry men? And I'm not singing it right. But you just get going. And they're waving this flag. And they're going, do you hear the people sing, singing the songs of angry men? And everybody in the theater is just pumped. And you just want to go and beat up something that's evil. You want to take care of business because you just want to fight somebody who deserves to be pounded into the ground. Do you understand the meaning? That's what's happening here, okay? The people are 
thoroughly, thoroughly pumped and excited because the Messiah has come and they have proclaimed, save us, save us, save us. Think of it like this. It is like you are going up a roller coaster and you're just... Because we all know what happens when you get to the top, right? When you get, you know, and then it stops and it's right about that time when it stops. Because you're about to just go down and it's all about to start. But that's not the way it goes here. Instead, they get super, super excited. And then it's like, whoo, do you hear the, the songs of men singing the songs of angry men? Ah, ah, ah. And it's, oh, it's late. We'll just go home. It's like going up this, this roller coaster. You get to the top and you're just about to go down. And then instead you take a nice little turn to a Culver's. Do you pick that up in the story? I mean, the statements, the actions, what were being proclaimed, these are revolutionary terms. There's nothing nice and sweet about this. In the past, we have been reading about this Jesus who is saying, no, don't tell anybody who I am. I know I just healed you, but don't tell anybody who I am. And at this point, Jesus is like, hey, Zechariah makes this statement about riding in on a colt. Do it. Get me a colt. Let them know who I am. If you read in the Gospel of John, his excuse me, the Pharisees start saying, "Tell your your disciples to stop. This has gone too far." And Jesus responds with, "If they stopped, the rocks will cry out." Not just praise to him, but proclamation that the King is here. But then everybody just kind of leaves. What? Yeah. Henry said, because he didn't do anything. Did he have to? See, realistically, if he is the new king, then the people take care of business. But they all just disperse. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about how they're praising him one second and then they're shouting for his death later. Which happens. I think the sadder thing right now is they're proclaiming he's the new king. Then they just kind of all go back home. Eh, that was nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't thinking that, but realistically, think of how many elections we have gone through where people said, this is the most important election ever. One of my favorite books in the Bible is uh, the Old Testament book of Amos. I love Amos. I love Amos because he, he, he just throws down. I got to be honest and say, I love it when God gets ticked, as long as he's not ticked at me, okay? I, I'm a big fan of God being ticked at other people. Um, not you either. Just, you know, leave my sin alone and go out. The book of Amos, God just throws down. And he uses a nobody to accomplish it. Amos was probably a migrant worker. It, do, it does not say he was a migrant worker because there was no description of a migrant worker then because a migrant worker was just a worker. But he is described as a shepherd 
of, of someone else's sheep and a pincher of figs. How would you like to have that in, on, as your job description? On your resume, what did you do? Well, I worked at so-and-so and I was a pincher of figs. Because what he would have done was the, these figs were, were not meant for human consumption. They would have been used for feeding animals and you had to pinch the fig in order to, to break the, the skin on it so that it could wi- ripen uh, properly to be eaten. This is not a high-level job. He's a migrant worker. And he calls the people of God out. Matter of fact, if you read most of the prophets of the Old Testament, every now and then they'll talk to the non-believers. Most of the time, when they're calling people out, it's the believers, which I think is how we mess it up quite often. People come in and say, I'm a prophetic voice. I have this one guy that I knew in Baton Rouge who uh, is a youth minister guy, and he just, you know, I'm a prophetic voice of the generation. All he ever does is chew people outside the church out. Just all the time. But you read the Old Testament, and the prophets, 90% of the time, are chewing the church out. Not the church, because the church didn't exist. But chewing the people of God out. And every now and then they go, and by the way, you outside the people of God, you're kind of messing up too. But usually they're looking at the people of God and saying, God called you to be like this, and you're not doing this. This is from the book of Amos. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark? Without a ray of brightness. Now, the reason I like this, and I know that's not a very positive uh, portion of Scripture uh, to read, because you, you read it and you're like, whoa, what is that? I'm just making sure of one thing here. Yeah. Um, he's saying it to a group of people who were talking about how excited they were when God would finally come and just kick butt. And Amos is saying, don't you understand you're not doing what God wants. When God comes and puts, and puts his house straight, you're going to be the one he's straightening up. I think these people were ready for, for Jesus to correct everything. And in their mind, what that meant was get rid of the Romans, get rid of anybody in power that I don't like, and leave me alone. And when Jesus enters and he stays the same and he walks around, I love one of the descriptions in uh, one of the other Gospels. It describes Jesus crying over Jerusalem. Jesus cries two times in Scripture. Now, he may have cried more than that, but there's only two times in Scripture where he's described as crying. One is when his friend Lazarus is dead, and the other is over the city of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, he describes God in feminine terms. And there are, there are times where God is described in feminine terms. I do not mean by that that God is feminine. I mean that God is described in, as feminine terms. God the Father is beyond sex. We use Father because it makes no sense to call him Father, Mother. That's kind of weird. Um, he is beyond sex. The Father has no sex. The only part of God that has sex is Jesus because, well, if he was a hermaphrodite, he wouldn't have been able to enter the temple. Okay, He had to be one or the other. But there are references to God where it is the feminine. And he's described as a mother hen who would take her chicks and guard them in her wings. Jesus cries and says, how many times have I wanted to to pull you in like a mother hen and protect you? But you did not know the day of your visitation. The day when God would arrive. 
They did not know. See, these people were, were proclaiming, oh, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord arrives, and they just kind of wait for Jesus to take care of business. And apparently that business is elsewhere. <laughs> it's not in their lives at all. I can relate to that. I'm all for God taking care of business in your lives, just leaving me alone. But that's not the way He works. He doesn't work by, by dealing with the people that I want Him to deal with. He works by dealing with me. This is apparently from some book, but I love the, the mindset of that. Because you know, while I, I may disagree with some of the Occupy stuff, I'm all about revolution every now and then, okay? I love when people say, something's got to change. But the problem is, most people are always saying, something's got to change, and they're talking about other people. I love the thought of you know, having like an Occupy movement in your own head. Where the revolution begins by our lives changing. Where the revolution begins. Because sometimes Jesus works real well for people if he's pushing issues on other people. But over and over and over again in scripture, he says, oh, by the way, you need to change like this. There's this wonderful reference where he talks about somebody having a speck in their eye. And he says, hey, by the way, you've got a plank in yours. And every now and then people are like, eh, Jesus isn't funny and such. That's a pretty funny image if you think about it. I mean, it'd be like this. I'm going to use you for a second, Jacob, just because you've been a pain tonight, okay? Let me get that speck. Let me get that speck. This is kind of fun. <laughs> we should do this more often for church. <laughs> I think this is a <laughs> Anybody else want to join? <laughs> Come on. Guys, that's funny. But it's also very true. I'm really good at spotting how you mess up. And not seeing how I mess up at all. Jesus comes and he wants to change our lives and then we change society. Jesus is not opposed to us changing society. He wants us to change it. But the change happens by beginning in us and then us changing the world. See, Jesus wasn't political and he was completely political at the exact same moment. Which is the danger when... when and I'm, I, realistically we only have two parties i mean there's more than that but if the republicans have jesus in, in their image and the democrats have jesus in their image that's not jesus jesus wants to convert us and then us be a part of him converting the world so i'm going to give you an example tradition now the, the thing about tradition is this we don't know that it's true but tradition quite often reflects some truth in it Tradition says that the gladiatorial fights in Rome stopped in the 4th century, so in the 300s, right after Constantine. But it was not because of Constantine. It was because of a monk. Now, the monk, and I, I always mess up his name. So Adam, I'm going to ask you, oh, Noah, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. The next slide, there's a note underneath it because I never can remember his name. Saint Telecomundus or something like that. Um, but basically, here's the story. You should see the note. What's the note? Tell a what? Telemachus? There we go. What? Telemachus. That sounds good too. Saint Telemachus. Or Telemachus. Or tell your mama. <laughs> the story is, is this. That he came to Rome and he entered the Colosseum and there were two gladiators fighting. And when he saw the gladiators fighting, he shouted out, in the name of Christ, stop. 
And he was sure that nobody could hear him because of the crowd. So he started wandering down the Colosseum. And he kept on shouting, in the name of Christ, stop. And then when nothing stopped, he climbed over the fence and he got into the floor of the Colosseum, shouting, in the name of Christ, stop. And as the gladiators continued to fight, he put himself in between them, shouting, in the name of Christ, stop. And then the crowd began to to shout out, run him through. Run him through. Run him through. So the gladiators did what they were good at. They killed for entertainment. And they ran him through. While he was pleading, in the name of Christ, stop. In the name of Christ, stop. Tradition has it, That was the very last gladiatorial fight. Not because Christians changed society by making laws. Not because Christians changed society by by the politics. But by Christians changing society because they had been changed in and of themselves. See, Jesus wants to lead a revolution. And we are mistaken when we think he just wants to come and form these nice little images that make our life nice and, and, and just comfortable. Jesus wants to take our lives and mess them up. It's what he does. But then he changes our society too. Because a messed up life has to live out the revolution of Christ. In our everyday life, it should affect the jobs we take. It should affect the way we treat our neighbors. It should affect the way we treat our families. It should make us live in an entirely different way because we have seen the king coming and we have cried out, Hosanna. And then we've acted because we believe he's the king. Everything we're about to read in the rest of Mark uh, up until the resurrection is going to take place all within one week. It'll probably take us three months, but it will be one week of of Jesus' life. And it is about finalizing the revolution. Jesus is not some sweet little passive person. He's the king who entered Jerusalem proclaiming that the old has passed away. I hope he's done that in your life. I hope he's doing that in your life. And I hope you're letting him do it in your life so that you can live it out. So let's pray. And then I'm going to show you a video. Pray with me, please. Father, forgive me for the times that I have treated your son as though he's just there to do what I want. Forgive me for the times that I have gotten real excited about him coming into my life, that I've gotten real excited about what he's doing, and then I've just decided to go home. Help me to follow the revolutionary king. The one who changes everything and turns it upside down. I pray this in his name. Amen.